Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity once again to come together uh, as a body of your people, to read your word, uh, and to, to contemplate what it means, to see what your Holy Spirit has to say to us. We ask that you open up your heart to what, our, what your word has to say, and open up your word to our hearts. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. A foreman calls one of his laborers in to have a chat about his lagging work performance. Sani says, why is it that the other guys, whenever they go up to the site, are carrying two planks, and you're only ever carrying one? He replies, well, they're all too lazy to go back for the other. Think about it. It'll kick in. <laughs> it's hard to pin down modern Australian work philosophy, the, the idea of why we work, what we do, and why we do it. And it didn't used to be this hard hundreds of years ago, this idea of work. Work used to be the most straightforward subject imaginable. For hundreds and hundreds of years, you'd be a peasant or a serf, and you'd grind away at a field of potatoes or a spinning wheel for 14 hours a day, and then crawl into bed and then get up and do it again. But gone are those simple days. And here in the first world of the 21st century, we must wrestle with new, unprecedented questions about the nature of work. How long can we reasonably stretch Smoko out? Should I cash in all my accrued leave, or should I use it backpacking around Europe? How much overtime can I work before I jump a salary bracket and the ATO gouges me for it? These are genuine questions. These are the kind of questions that most Australians do, in fact, spend a good little time thinking about, as they should. The average person spends something like a third of their life working, some 30 years or so. It's a wonder we don't spend more time thinking about why we work and how to do it, and to, how to do it in a more Christ-like manner. Today is the, the last in our series of seven weeks of, of transformation. We've talked about how coming to know Christ should transform us in every aspect. And we've talked about spiritual, emotional, mental, relational, physical, and financial transformation so far. Uh, and that is how the believer in Jesus Christ ought to be changed in their attitude and their actions towards all these facets of their lives. And today we're talking about vocational transformation, being a believer in our workplace, in our career, and how being transformed, being made new by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ should change us even in that way. From what we might have been saying or doing before we received the grace of our Lord to this new creation that we become. Now, there are, in fact, a surprising amount of Christian talks floating around on YouTube and other places about the idea of being a Christian in your workplace. And they tend to fall into one of two groups. There's the workplace as a mission field group and the do everything in the name of Jesus group. Both of these are important, but I want to outline them briefly here. The workplace mission field idea is good, but it's not big enough to be a Christian philosophy of work. You can grab a verse from 1 Peter uh, chapter 3.15, which says, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And we impress that and we say, All right, I'm not just a Christian on Sunday. I'm a believer every day of my life. I'm a child of God every day. I have to spread the good news. And then you have to muster up the courage 
to speak to your coworkers about Christ in the appropriate moment. Let's say you work at a Subway franchise. You might be there early in the morning baking bread with your coworker for the breakfast rush, and then you suck in a breath and fortify yourself, and you say, you know, this bread is pretty good, but you know what's better than that? The bread of life. To which may commonly come the reply, look, I don't really care about that religion stuff. I'd rather not talk about that. Well, I tried. And now for two to six years of guilt-free sandwich artistry. Now, that may not be entirely fair. If you don't provoke gospel conversations, you won't get a lot of them. So maybe just to be fair, down the other end of the spectrum, you could say, you know, it's even better, the bread of life. And they might say, oh, I'm sorry, I was distracted by the conspicuous burden of sin in my life and a painful awareness of the cosmic distance between me and the God who made me. But your talk of living bread intrigues me, and I wonder if you have a tract in your wallet that I could tearfully peruse. Gold star, that was the right moment. You've done it. But what interests me today is all the time that you don't spend directly talking about gospel stuff. If we're talking about being transformed, we're talking about a whole experience of being transformed. That suggests a substantial change to the whole nature of how we work, not just when we are willing or when the opportunity comes up, when we can have those little golden windows to speak directly about Christ. The courage and willingness to share the gospel, they are not the only change to our working lives that following Jesus entails. And the second type of these work talks is, this, is the doing everything in the name of Christ type of talk and trying to tap into this idea that comes from 1 Corinthians uh, 10.31 particularly. They say, well, so whenever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Now, this is a fine sentiment. It is gospel, it is scripture. But often a discussion about doing everything for the glory of God becomes very light on the application because what does that mean? And it's certainly very easy to talk about working for the glory of God when you are, for example, working in ministry. But how does a plumber plumb for the glory of God? How does a soldier fight and kill the enemy of his country for the glory of God? How does a retiree cruise around the Caribbean for the glory of God? How do you do the thing that you have to do 8, 10, 12 hours a day for the glory of God? What does that even mean? Now, obviously, we must take the gospel opportunities that we have in our workplace. Obviously, we are living our lives for the glory of God. And I want to spend some time talking about what that actually means, what it looks like. How a person working in their workplace pro gloria dei for the glory of God looks different to someone working for the love of money, or for the love of the job, or even though they hate it. And the key passage for this is the one that we've had read for us. Hello, hello? Yes? Back? Okay. <laughs> the key passage is Luke 16, which is uh, often called the parable of the shrewd manager, or I prefer it this way, is the parable of the unscrupulous manager. Because that's a fun word to say. Unscrupulous. 
And it's one of these very puzzling parables because it really looks like Jesus is recommending something immoral. And in this case, you have to do a bit of a spiritual double take to avoid getting the impression that Jesus is giving the seal of divine authority to straight up fraud. So let's look at the parable in summary again. There's a, there's a rich man, that's the master, and he has a manager for his wealth and his possessions working beneath him. You've got your manager and you've got your master. Now the master hears that his manager has been mismanaging his wealth. He is appropriately upset. He calls the manager in, he tells him, you've been wasteful with my investments, you are done, I want your office cleaned out by the end of the day. The manager is distressed, but he is a clever fellow. And he uses his last couple of hours of employment to call in the people who are in debt to his master and then give them somewhat shady sweetheart deals on their loans, 50% off and 20% off in these examples. Now later on, the master finds out about this move and commends the manager for doing it, for taking this unseemly course of action. He's made grateful friends who will look after him now that he's fired. And apparently this is commendable. Now comes the confusing part from verse 8 to 13. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with, with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What? The example Christ gives is an employee deceiving his boss and making friends by use of this illicit wealth. Then Christ tells his followers to use worldly wealth to make eternal friends, and then says whoever dishonestly uses worldly riches cannot be trusted with heavenly ones. And you cannot serve both God and money. There's a reason that verse 13, the one about not serving two masters, is usually just pulled out of context and preached on on its own. This parable does not make the cultural translation as easily as some others have. But let's pick it apart. Now when we hear about a master in a parable, our instinct is to say, okay, master, God, got it. And usually that's a fair guess. But in this case, the master does not represent God. The master represents worldly wealth. The eternal friends here are allied with the kingdom. They're, they're saints. They're the ones we're supposed to be on the side of, really. The ones to whom the manager gives this special deal. They don't represent God directly. God is no man's debtor, but they do represent the kingdom, the other sons and daughters of God, whom we love as part of our family of God. So Jesus uses a parable about the unscrupulous use of material wealth to teach a message about the kingdom and its priority, about recognizing this world, this job, this life, which we know will end soon enough, 
as a resource to be wrung out for any benefit it can give to the coming kingdom. Every now and then, you'll read an interesting story about an archaeologist or an anthropologist or someone who digs up old things, digging up the bones of some thousands of years dead man or woman, and they'll be buried with money or weapons or whatever their loved ones thought they were most going to need in the next life, hoping that somehow they'd be able to take their, their axe or their handful of gold across the veil of death into whatever comes next. The ancient Greeks believed that the dead needed to cross the river Styx in the afterlife, a great river, and they had to pay the ferryman to take them across, otherwise trapped kind of before what passes for ancient Greek paradise. And so they'd put a coin over each eye of the body before they did their funeral rites, literally giving them ferry fare to make their way into the afterlife. Egyptian pharaohs expected to receive huge, lavish kingdoms after death like they had in their lives. And so they were buried with tons of gold, which is why we always see these pictures of the golden sarcophagi and the, the various treasures of the, the mummy's tombs. In fact, when a, when a pharaoh died, it was customary for them to be buried with their servants, their servants still alive, so that they could help them on the other side of death. This fear of what is going to happen after death and trying to take something with us is a common theme for all people. But we know, because the word has told us, 1 John 2.17, the world and its desires will pass away. We know how the story ends. It wasn't that long ago in this church we looked at the book of Revelation and regardless of quite how literally one takes those events, the thrust is the same. Nothing survives the end. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Our wealth vanishes. Our worldly accomplishments will vanish. No tower built will remain standing. No treasure, no matter how tightly held, will remain imperishable at the end. Everything passes away. Wealth, earthly desires, our lives, everything is broken down in the final act. Therefore, clinging to wealth and a life spent working and striving to increase and retain that wealth is futile. The manager's last day in this parable is our whole mortal life. We know it's coming to an end. We know we're not going to get to keep anything. We know we're going to have to leave the master's stuff behind. That's the message that Jesus is telling us. New heavens, new earth. Everything washes away and is made new in the last days, except the one thing that has already been made new. The one thing that we see God already wash and make new in our lifetimes, our hearts, our souls, our personalities, who we are. Everything in us but our flesh has already died and been made new, and that doesn't need to happen again. Colossians 3, 3, 4, 3 and 4 says this, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The only thing we will have with us 
that will last are our, who we are, our hearts, our souls. So it stands to reason that any reward or benefit that comes out of working in this world, in this life that is going to pass away, has to reside in us, in our heart, our soul, our personality. It has to affect us and not just be stuff that we get to keep. In a sense, every lesson learned, every mistake we make, every pain endured in this life only has an enduring impact on our character and the character of those around us. So the things we spend doing, we spend our lives doing, shape us and they grow us and they mold us and they teach us. And really that's all we get to take with us. If God wanted all of us in this life to come straight to Jesus as soon as we'd met him for the first time on our knees in prayer, then we die the second that we heard the gospel. But we remain here because he continues to shape us. And when we take a job that is just one more tool in our life that the Holy Spirit can and will use to make those who follow Christ more Christ-like. As Pastor David put it this morning, it is our character that matters, not our career. Character over career. I'm going to put it as simply as possible. The job that you work will pass away. But what your job does, the work it does on you, lasts. What the job does to you is what matters. That is the single most transformative truth that the gospel has for our careers. Our work changes us, and God expects us to change to become more Christ-like. Because... We are the thing that gets carried over from the old world into the new one. For example, military men and women do not have messy rooms. They spend a lot of time under regulation, under demands to keep their quarters clean, to be disciplined and diligent in every aspect of their work. They come home, and what do you know? They match their socks. They make their beds. They cannot abide making mess. Sometimes they unlearn this habit, but it is one that's taught to them. Because their work has changed them. That's the attitude they carry through their work, and it echoes into their lives. Should we be surprised, then, that someone who decides that they hate their job, and, is, and they are miserable there, comes home, and they are miserable there, too? Or a person who devotes themselves fully to doing their job diligently with genuine care for the people they work for, and then they come home and they are attentive and a genuinely caring person there as well. Now, home and work echo back and forth onto each other, obviously. A, a troubled home life makes it hard to be anything but troubled at work. But the point that we're making here is that we must be aware of the attitude that we are carrying into our work because it changes us. And this is really the difference between the, the talk about financial health and transformation we, we had previously and the, uh, the vocational health and transformation we're talking about now. Our financial health is about the stewardship of the temporary resources that God gives us. Our vocational health, in a strange way, is really about our stewardship of ourselves, the only lasting resource that God has given us, our own hearts, that eternal resource. 
Living that way, carrying that attitude of obligation to God into our jobs, that is what it means to do whatever you do for his glory. This is so important because the world doesn't quite understand this. For the believer, living and working are in harmony. We work for the glory of God and we live for the glory of God. They're both angled towards God. We're sons and daughters of God every day, at home and at work. But for the world, those who don't know the Savior, there are two options. You either live to work or you work to live. Now, living to work is a kind of a a soup of material acquisitions and temporary achievements. Doing that over time until you can afford the car that you really want or the investment property that you really want or to launch your own business. The other parts of your life, church, family, rest even, these things remain, but they're the first things to get sacrificed to get the more work done. There's a competitive drive there. There's a need to leave a mark to prove one's worth. These are things that should be harnessed for some better ultimate purpose, but they're too often left to stand alone. Why do you work so hard? To make more money. Why do you need this money? To make the hard work worthwhile. Maybe so I never have to feel insecure about money again. None of these are terrible reasons, but they're also short-sighted. The money can't come with you after the life is over. So that's living to work. Now, working to live is far more common. If you work to live, then work is an obstacle. You don't particularly want to do it. You'd get rid of it if you could. You'll sink dollar after dollar into the pokey machines, hoping that all the lights will go off, and then you'll never have to work again. You can show up as late as you think you can get away with, leave as early as possible. You might spend a long time grumbling about your boss being an idiot, while you and yours, the real workers, suffer down here. You might envy those who have more or make up stories in your head about how they don't really deserve what they have. Work is frustrating and pointless, and if you can do as little of it as possible, that'd be great. Well, hey, maybe study until I'm 31. then I'll be much happier than all those wage slaves and corporate drones with their quarterly reports and their working for the man. Now, forgive my passion on that one. I may have known some of these folks or been one in a previous era. But this is a toxic kind of laziness. It's a poisonous attitude that is just as corrosive to the person we are as materialism can be. But Colossians 3.22 says this. Slaves... Now, it starts with slaves, but this is applicable to all those who work under someone else's authority. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. We are expecting God to reward us, not with just some temporary prize that will pass away, but something eternal and valuable for all the work we put in. Not because God needs a proliferation of subway franchises, because he is working on us in the tasks he puts before us. 
All those material things will pass away, but you, the person who carries this God-glorifying attitude into work, you last forever. And the Lord showed his interest in you by sending his son to die on the cross. He purchased you a great price. With that death, he took away our sins, our guilt, our shame, all that keeps us from him. And in that death, we are made new. And now we are waiting faithfully for everything else to be made new. Being a child of God means being transformed in our attitude to work and also to our home life. So they're not in conflict anymore. And that's a blessing the rest of the world doesn't easily stumble upon. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, but you have some days wondered why you bother working at all, or if you've looked down the long line of your career and realized that a comfortable-ish retirement can't be the final real goal of life, then fortunately, you're surrounded by folks who would love to talk to you about the peace and forgiveness and purpose that they've found in Jesus. And I'm one of them. I'd love to talk to you after. But if you call yourself a child of God, then you are called to live a transformed life in every aspect, as a living example of a renewed heart awaiting final reunion with the kingdom, and also as a steward of your own character. How we carry ourselves as we work each day, as we pursue our careers, will impact our relationship with God throughout our lives. And it will impact our eternal reward. But fortunately, we're given much providence to help us. We're given our brothers and sisters in our church family. We're given the guidance of his word, and we're given the Holy Spirit's own urgings to equip us and help us live and work in a way that does, in fact, glorify him. Let's pray. Father God, you make us new. But we still wait on the day when all things are made new. You furnish us with our passions, with our strength, and with our ideas. Help us use all of them in whichever workplace you set us in a way that glorifies you. Help us to be compassionate to our co-workers as we strive to be compassionate outside of work hours. To work hard at our job as we desire to work hard for your kingdom. And to remember always that we are not working to live or living to work, but we are living and working for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.